Please turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. We've been spending the next, the last month or so looking at the grace of giving, asking that the Lord would train us, teach us, change us, transform us, that we might have giving hearts that reflect the heart of our God, the heart of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we're wrapping that series up and kind of segueing into Thanksgiving by looking at this passage from Philippians 4 this morning. Philippians 4, and I'll begin in verse 10 and read through verse 20. Philippians 4, verses 10 through 20. Please give your attention to God's word. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have received, you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. I once saw a medical study that said that people who complain often tend to live longer than people who don't complain as often. Now, one of the theories that they put forward in the study for why this could possibly be true is that people who express their anger and frustration and and fear, the expression of these emotions is more healthy to your physical well-being than it is to repress those things and hold them in. And certainly that's probably true. But a better theory is that chronic complainers don't actually live longer than other people. It just seems that way to everyone around them. (laughs) We are all complainers by nature. We were born complainers. Romans chapter 1 verses 20 and 21 says, so they, speaking of all of us, are without excuse for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. That's the effect of sin. The effect of sin is that we become unthankful. 
Not only do we become unthankful, but we, by nature, become complainers. We're grumblers by nature. We're talking about this partially because we've been talking about the grace and the gift of giving that the Lord gives us in his redemptive work, but also as we're thinking in a few days of celebrating Thanksgiving. To realize that to truly give thanks is a redemptive work of God in our hearts because we're not that way by nature. Grumbling is against God. Thanksgiving is to God, but grumbling is against God. When we grumble, when we complain, we're not just describing what's wrong with our life, are we? I mean, you can describe what's wrong in your life. You can describe the suffering that you go through and not actually be complaining. What makes it complaining is when you are actually, in your heart, protesting against the one who's in control of your life. Complaining is against God. It's When you think about the Israelites in the wilderness, the many, many occasions when they were grumbling, when God judged them for their grumbling, when you think about what they were doing that brought the judgment upon themselves, it's that they were accusing God of being unfair, of being unjust, of being harsh with them. Grumbling is allowing your grief and disappointment to turn into resentment and bitterness. I talk about this because what's really remarkable to me as I look at Philippians chapter 4 is that Paul, in his circumstances, is incredibly content and thankful. And just to remind you, since we're jumping into the middle of his letter here, actually jumping to the end of his letter here in Philippians, to remind you of the situation, if you just glance back at chapter 1 and remember what's the situation as Paul writes this letter to the Philippian church, he's sitting in a Roman prison, a dark, dank, uncomfortable Roman prison. And he is waiting for the final decision on his case to come down from the Roman authorities to find out whether he's going to be executed or not. That's Paul's situation as he writes these words in chapter 4. He writes these, the, the particular occasion that leads to him writing this part of the letter is that the Philippian Christians had just sent him another gift. They had been, as he mentions here, they'd been sending him gifts for quite a while. And the latest in the series of gifts had just come to him from somebody of their own number, an assistant of Paul named Epaphroditus. And this gift has come, and it's just remarkable as you look at Paul's attitude there in that prison waiting for execution as he receives that gift, the way he talks about it, What I want to point out to you this morning is that Paul's attitude is a model for us of what a Christ-like, Christ-centered heart should be. How we should look at life even in difficult circumstances and be able to rest in contentment. You know, Paul rejoices that he has received a gift from these beloved brothers and sisters in Christ. But it's important to him that they understand that his joy, his peace, his security, his contentment is not in the accumulation of gifts. He says, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. He says, I have learned the secret 
Don't you wish you could gain that secret? Don't you wish you could appropriate that secret into your life? How to be satisfied. How to say, I have enough. I'm content. Not just for a moment, but every day of your life. I'm going to show my age here a little bit, but when I was a kid, I remember the variety shows that used to be real popular on television. And just, for example, the Ed Sullivan show. I remember one of the recurring uh, bits that they would do on the Ed Sullivan show is that they would have a guy, they'd have a bear stage, and you'd have like maybe 10 or 12 skinny poles standing on end. That's all you saw on the stage. And then this guy would come out with a, a pile of plates. And he would take those plates and he would set a plate on top of the first pole and he'd get the, the, the pole, he'd, he'd do this with the pole and he'd get the plate spinning on top of the pole. And then he'd do that with the next pole and put another plate on the second pole and a third plate on the third pole. And the whole bit, the whole thing that was so entertaining for us was watching this guy trying to get 12 plates spinning on 12 poles all at the same time. And by the time you got to like the 8th or ninth or 10th pole and got the 8th or ninth or 10th plate spinning, it was really amusing watching the guy running back and forth at breakneck speed trying to make sure that all the plates were still spinning until he could get the 12th plate up there. And once he got them all spinning at the same time, he would stop and he'd throw up his hands and everybody would applaud and then all the plates would come crashing to the floor. And I, I just had a thought of that image in my mind from my childhood when I thought about what most of us are like when it comes to trying to find contentment in our lives. That we have all these plates that we've got to keep spinning and, you know, that if we could just get all these plates spinning at all the same time, if we could just get every one of our physical, emotional, and spiritual needs met all at the same time, we could reach that moment, we could throw up our hands and say, I'm content. And then all the plates would come crashing to the ground and we'd have to start all over again. And so much of the life, it seems like that. If you're living outside of faith, if you're living in the flesh, that's the only hope you have of contentment. That somehow you can reach that point where all your needs are met just for a moment and you can rejoice in that moment and then wave goodbye to it so you can start all over again to try to have your needs met. How can we be continuously content. Paul says, I've learned the secret. (laughs) I've learned the secret of being content at all times, in all places, in all situations. Well, as I look at what Paul says here, typically we pastors think in threes. I see three things about how he found the secret of contentment. The first one is that In order to be content, you need to seek your satisfaction in Christ and not in things. That's got to be a characteristic of your life, that you seek satisfaction in Christ and not in things. Look at verses 10 and 11. He says he he rejoiced to receive their gifts, but he goes on to say, not that I'm speaking of being in need. (laughs) This is a guy sitting in a dungeon waiting for execution. Saying, not that I speak of being in need. Verse 17, you skip down there, he says, not that I seek the gift. He's not seeking the gifts from God's people. He's not living for his ministry support. He's not living for a paycheck. He's not seeking the material benefit of doing what he does in life. He says in verse 11 that he would have been content with or without their gift. 
He's really thankful to have it. He he makes that clear a number of times in this passage. But he still would have been content without their gift because he's learned the secret. And we mentioned this last week, and we've seen this in a number of these passages. We've looked at the grace of giving that Paul was very uncomfortable with receiving material support from those to whom he ministered. He just always seemed very uncomfortable with it. Partly, we know, as we talked about last week, is because his enemies accused him of only doing ministry for material benefit, which was ridiculous from what we know of Paul's life. But he was also uncomfortable with it because it really wasn't what he was about. And material things, you really get the sense with Paul that they were necessary distractions, necessary burdens to deal with. I think that what this reflects is that Paul's central driving motivation for doing what he did in life, the great things that the Apostle Paul did, was just the joy of seeking Christ and his kingdom. Reminds me of what Jesus said. Remember when the apostles came to him in John chapter 4 after they'd come back from the Samaritan village and they tried to share some food with him. Jesus teaches them a lesson in that moment. He says, I have food that you don't know about. And they looked at each other and said, where did he get food? He's been sitting out here by himself all afternoon. How could he possibly have any food? Jesus goes on to say, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. That's the key to spiritual maturity, is that your real satisfaction, your real contentment lies in resting in the will and pursuing the will of the God who has saved you. I remember having a conversation with another pastor. We pastors do get together and we commiserate about the burdens of ministry sometimes and we admitted, I remember this one particular conversation, I have one other pastor, we, we were all commenting on that we had this very similar experience sometimes of going to the grocery store and standing in line and kind of just mulling over all of the pastoral concerns and administrative concerns and, and issues of ministry and looking at the cashier simply running those products across the scanner and the bagger at the end just putting those objects in the bag and just thinking, man, I wish I had that job. And it was just funny. We were both just laughing at each other because we both have had that thoughts on many occasions. And there are certainly days in the ministry where I would much rather go bag groceries than do what I do for a living. And I have to admit that to you, and I confess that to you. But those days are far fewer than the days of real joy and satisfaction in seeing the Word of God change people's lives. And at the end of that conversation with that other pastor, we both agreed that, yes, those days come and go, but overall, we would never, we would never ever see ourselves doing anything else in our lives because of the joy of seeing the Word of God change people's lives. We would do this for free. Don't get any ideas. <laughs> but we would. Literally... Trusting the Lord to provide, we would do this for free because our food is to do the will of God who sent us. I hope you know that in your own life. I hope you're not working for a paycheck. I hope you're not working to pay your bills. I hope that you are driven by a desire to do 
the will of the God who has saved you through the death and resurrection of his own son. Every mature Christian I know seems to be unconcerned with material things and wealth. Every mature Christian that I know seems to be just unconcerned with material things and material wealth. Paul, the secret, we're getting towards closer to what's this secret that Paul knows. Flip back to chapter 3. We've read this verse. I think, actually, I think I've quoted this verse in almost every sermon I've preached in the last month. But to me, it's so much the key to understanding, to getting yourself to the point, or allowing the Lord to get you to the point where you rejoice in giving, is understanding what Paul understood here in Philippians 3, picking up in verse 7. Whatever gain I had, and he's talking about material, earthly gain and honor and respect in the worldly, fleshly terms. He says, whatever gain I had, I counted as lost for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. That's where he found contentment. That's where he found joy. Is in gaining more and more of Christ in his life. That's why he says in verse 12, in chapter 4, verse 12, he says, you know, gaining Christ is so important to him that it doesn't matter whether he's brought low or whether he abounds. And the word abounds there is really pointing to material needs. Whether he has a lot of things or just a few things, what's really important is that he gain Christ. It's been my practice in, in throughout the last decade or so of my ministry to take a uh, what I call a prayer and study retreat, a three-day retreat, three days, two nights, in the spring and the fall. And the purpose of that prayer and study retreat is just to get alone with Christ. And I have found that over the years, it's what keeps me spiritually sane. It's, what, it's one of the things that the Lord uses to really get me back on track and to get my bearing straight, to get my head cleared, and to, to kind of renew me in ministry. And what I do in those three-day retreats, not to lift myself up as an example in any way, but I, I just wish everybody had the opportunity to do this. And I think more of you do than, you're, than, than are willing to admit it. But to take two or three days, get away, and all I do is I take... The clothes I need to wear for those three days, I take a cooler full of food and I go to a Christian camp somewhere and I just spend three days with my Bible in prayer to the Lord. And it's going back to what we talked about these last few weeks of reducing life to the necessities, food, clothing, and shelter, and the Lord. And it's amazing when you do that, when you just take, I mean, our lives are so complicated by the things and the responsibilities of normal life, that when you do that, just consciously simplify your life to where all you have is your food and clothes and shelter and the word of the Lord and the spirit of God, it's amazing how spiritually it just kind of reboots your life. Gets you back to what's important. Gets you back to what your life is really all about. It's about seeking Christ and his kingdom first. And if you have any way of incorporating that spiritual discipline into your life, and I know in your complicated lives it's hard to do that, 
find a way to simplify your life occasionally, whether it's twice a year for three days or whether it's once a week for one day or once a month for two days, whatever way you find to do it, find a way to spiritually reboot and remind yourself that beyond food and clothing and shelter, all you need is Christ. That's what your life is about, to gain him. Paul was able to rejoice in his situation and to be fully content because even more than food, his food was to do the will of Christ who saved him. Secondly, seek satisfaction in Christ not in, um, as we said, first of all, not in your things, but secondly, not in your circumstances. Seek your satisfaction in Christ not in good circumstances. It's amazing how many times in our lives we base our sense of contentment and peace and joy in good and comfortable circumstances. Paul says in verse 12, In any and every circumstance I have found the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. In any and every circumstance. Now, how do we know that Paul was true to his word? It's easy for a preacher to, or a pastor to say that. How do we know that he's true to his word? Well, if you skip back to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, this is the lifestyle that Paul knew. He knew all about difficult circumstances. I'm going to pick up in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in the middle of verse 23, where he talks about labors, imprisonments, countless beatings, and being often near death. Verse 24, Five or five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure." And apart from the other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. I love the fact he tacked that on the end. That, you know, that of all those horrible, suffering, difficult circumstances, just the weight of caring for the churches was on the same level for him. It's a trial. It's a tribulation. But yet, in all of that, he was content. You know, that, that when you read those verses, that's not the victorious life of health and wealth that some Christians talk about. And yet, Paul was always content in every circumstance. The word content that he uses in verse 11, Philippians 4, verse 11, that word content is actually kind of a rare word in the Greek New Testament. And it's a word that was very popular among the Greek Stoics. They use that word all the time. And it's interesting because the word literally, if you break the word down, what it means is to be self-sufficient. And you can see why scripture writers might be reluctant to use the word self-sufficient because certainly that's not what the gospel teaches, is that we're not to be sufficient in and of ourselves. But Paul still borrows that word from the from the Stoics to get across the idea that we must not be dependent on things outside of ourselves, things in this world. That's what he's trying to get across. 
the Stoics believed that you could, that, that, that really what maturity was for a Stoic was to be so in control of negative emotions like fear and anger and despair, but to control those negative emotions through logic, through reason. If you are an old Star Trek fan, Mr. Spock was the ultimate Stoic. He totally sought to control all of his emotions by his own Vulcan nature. And one of the ongoing storylines of that show is it was just a constant battle with him. You do not think of, I mean, he, he appeared on the surface to be content, but you realize there's once in a while they plug in a show to let you know that there was this battle, this war, internal war going on in him all the time, that he wasn't really content inwardly as he sought to control his emotions. But Paul is not talking about that kind of Mr. Spock contentment. What he's talking about is a true contentment where you are truly at peace inwardly. And it's because you are not dependent on anything outside of you in order to be at peace and content. You are dependent, desperately dependent, Paul is trying to say, on something that is inside of you, or rather someone who is inside of you. He says, I have learned the secret. And the word there, the word secret, that translated in English as secret, really should be the word mystery. I have learned the mystery because it's the word that the New Testament uses for something that is true that cannot be known unless God reveals it to us. The mystery of being content in all circumstances is what he's talking about. There was a, a book and a movie. I don't know if you ever noticed it. It wasn't real popular, but uh, there was a book called The Secret that came out a number of years ago, and there was a movie based upon it. I kept seeing it around, and I wonder what in the world is that about. Picked it up in a bookstore one day and started to leaf through it and lost patience with it after a few pages. But I did read enough to get what the book was saying, is that, that basically it was talking about all the great leaders, all the great people, scientists, military leaders, political leaders, business leaders, all these great people in history all had this one thing that they had figured out, this one secret. And I think what they called it was, uh, in the book, it calls it the rule of attraction. And it was basically the idea of people who just were so positive in their thinking that when you think positive thoughts so intensely that it actually has an attractive quality to it and that that uh, that that effort to think positively will draw good things to happen in your life. It's kind of the secular version of health and wealth theology, I think. But, you know, that's... It's not what Paul's talking about here. He's not saying that if I just rest in Christ, I can do anything I want to do. I can make my life look any way I want it to look. That's not what he's saying. He's saying I can do all things... In Christ who strengthens me. Verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. It's the indwelling presence of Christ. It's resting in that. It's depending on that that brings that peace and contentment. And that's not saying that that's going to make your life easy. It's not going to make your life comfortable. It might make it very difficult. But as Colossians 2 says, this is Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and and knowledge. Paul's favorite phrase, if you just look through all of Paul's writings, is in Christ. 
He uses it over and over and over. That's the ideal for us, is to be in Christ. Christ in us and us in Christ. Of being so relationally dependent upon him that we are at peace in all circumstances. Paul, remember, had a thorn in his life. He talks about this thorn back in 2 Corinthians 12, verses 9 and 10. He begged the Lord to take this thorn out of his life, but the Lord didn't. The Lord left him to suffer with this thorn so that he could learn this secret that he's talking about in Philippians 4. The secret of being content in Christ in all circumstances. He says in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9, My grace is sufficient for you, the Lord said to me. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. That's what it means to rest in Christ, to depend upon Christ, to be in Christ in all circumstances. Paul said back in Philippians 3 that he wants to know Christ through the fellowship of his sufferings. That's when you really draw near to Christ, is when you share in the sufferings of Christ. Psalm 119 says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. That's contentment in affliction, because In affliction, we gain Christ, a deeper dependence upon him. I once read a book on bitterness, how to deal with bitterness in your life. And one of the practical words of advice it gave in that book was, as you're really struggling to get over some very harmful, hurtful, difficult circumstance in your life, as you're wrestling with being bitter over that, he said, you know, and again, ultimately you're complaining as against God, not whoever might have been at the the cause of it on earth. And he says, make two lists. First of all, write down a list of all the things that this trial, this difficulty, this time of suffering has cost you. And then make another list of all the things that God has done in your life through this trial. And then he says, at the end of it, he says, if you erase the first list, if you could erase the first list, knowing that it would also erase the second list, would you do it? And I know if you're really a believer and you've walked by faith in your life, you know that experience of getting past a trial, being able to look back on it and say, I hated going through it, but I wouldn't give back what the Lord taught me through it. That's what it means to be content, even in affliction. And that leads to the last point. I'm not going to dwell on this one because we've been talking about this one for a month. But I do believe that in order to really know and experience the grace of giving, you need to first be content in Christ, to live in thankfulness, to not be discontent because you're looking for comfort and peace and meaning and value in this life. So don't seek satisfaction in things. Seek it in Christ. Don't seek satisfaction in circumstances. Seek it in Christ. But seek satisfaction in giving, not receiving, because giving is the nature of Christ. Paul says in verse 15, he refers to their partnership in giving and receiving. I love that language. We've talked a lot about partnership in recent months. That that's what it means to be with Christ, is to be in partnership with him and partnership with each other. And Paul calls it a partnership in giving and receiving. Back in chapter 1, he calls it the partnership in the gospel. He says he thanks God for the Philippians' partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. We are kingdom investors together, seeking the reward of the kingdom 
encouraging one another in our investments, that we encourage one another in our giving because we are investors together seeking an eternal reward. That's why Paul says in verse 17, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. See, that's what he's focused on. He's thankful for a material gift to help him in his time of need, but what he's really rejoicing in is that the Philippians are learning the grace of giving. They're learning the joy of giving. They've learned, they're learning to have the same kind of contentment that he has in Christ so that they are able to give to those in need. Joyful giving is a sign that your contentment is in Christ and not in this world. And it's a trust. Giving is a trust, like we talked about last week, that God will provide your need as you give. As he said, Paul says in verse 19, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. We should not be fearful of giving because God will meet our needs. He who did not spare his own son, Paul says in Romans 8, but gave him up for us all, will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? As Tom mentioned, there's going to be a uh, change in the Black Friday sales this year. They've moved the time back in Target, Walmart, Sears. They've moved the time back in most of their stores from, what, 6 in the morning it used to be, moved it to like 5, 4 in the morning, moved it to midnight. Now it's going to be like 8 or 9 o'clock on Thanksgiving Day. They're going to open their stores. I would really like to believe that the reason there's a demand to open the stores at 8 o'clock on Thanksgiving Eve is because we are so filled with thankfulness for all that God has done for us, and we're just so overflowing in joy and excitement and thankfulness to God that we can't wait until Friday morning to go out and buy things to give to other people. I'd like to believe that's why there's a demand for it. I don't believe it. I think for the vast majority, I, I know there's some that may be true for, but for the vast majority, it's that we are so content in things. We are so discontent without the things that we want that we are allowing dis, our, our pursuit of contentment in things to crowd out our opportunity for thanksgiving. And unfortunately, that's way of life in America. Contentment is a gift of God's grace It's an outworking of your redemption in Christ. It is a lifelong process of breaking the associations that we've been drilled into us, that our satisfaction isn't in our possessions, it's in Christ. Our satisfaction is not in comfortable circumstances, it's in Christ. And our satisfaction isn't in hoarding our stuff, it's giving our stuff away because that's what Christ-likeness looks like. Let's pray. Father, You have blessed us so abundantly, and these things in our lives have burdened us down and distracted us from what's really important and what's eternal. Teach us to be truly content. Teach us to be truly thankful this Thanksgiving. And then, out of that contentment and thanksgiving, show us how you would have us give to others in the time of Christmas giving, that it might truly be from our hearts, and be a reflection of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.